Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to the book of 1 John. And we're going to go to chapter 6. Hey, Josh, can you help me grab that board again? Um, might do some artwork today if you guys. All right. Handsome young man, yeah? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think. I think both of those guys want to keep their hair. I'm pretty sure about that. Pretty sure about that. Uh, when you think of phrases like this, well, that's not a hill I'm going to die on. What are you thinking about? Like, what's going on in phrases like that? That's not a hill I'm going to die on. Or maybe this one: I'd take a bullet for her. What's going on in phrases like that? Well, as a figure of speech, death, the idea, the concept of death is brought into the picture to communicate the strength of one's convictions or the lack thereof. The strength of one's convictions when one says, I'd take a bullet for her. Right? That's strong conviction of professed love or the lack thereof. That's not a hill that I'm prepared to die on. Right? It's a figure of speech that communicates strength of feeling, conviction, passion. Many love poems, sonnets, songs through the ages have employed that figure of speech. In fact, you uh, children of the 80s might remember a song by Bon Jovi that was entitled, I'd Die For You. I'd Die For You. Or the classic from Brian Adams that you may remember mostly from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves where he says, you can't tell me it's not worth fighting for. I can't help it. There's nothing I want more. Yeah, I would fight for you. I'd lie for you. I'd walk the wire for you. Yeah, I'd die for you. You know it's true. (laughs) Everything I do. You know that. I'd do it for you. All of these statements, these figures of speech, communicate really about proof convincing proof about what I'm saying. I say I love you, and I'm willing to testify to that even by dying for you. So by expressing one's willingness to die for something or someone, people are expressing clarity and conviction about it, proving what they believe, proving how much they love. So you can see how that's the concept around the language of martyr, right? I believe in something strong enough that I'm willing to die for. I love someone so strong that I'm willing to put my life on the line for them. I wouldn't hesitate to do that. Thus, I would seal my profession of love, my profession of faith and conviction in something by my blood, by my willingness to die, to be a martyr for that ultimate testimony. So the idea behind martyr is convincing proof. It's convincing proof that they were willing to go to that end, to those links. You may be interested to know, though, that the word martyr didn't always have that connotation with regard to death. 
In fact, in the first century, the word martyr was a very common word that was often used in the court of law, the setting of the court of law, simply meaning testimony or witness. You may also find it interesting to note that the word martyr is actually found in our text eight times. So check out your text for a moment. As you glance down at it, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, you may find it translated as witness or testimony, but it's there eight times. Eight times, the word martyr, translated as witness or testimony. Now, the word itself, as John uses it here, has nothing to do with death. Going to that length as a witness or testimony to what one professes. But rather, it's more so just simply used, as it was in the common vernacular in that day, as a key witness. A key witness or evidence pointing to the truth of something, the veracity of something. So by using the language of martyr in this text, what John is doing, and I think this is really important to get right up front, because this is the heart of this text. By using the language of martyr, John is intending to bring us convincing proof about the personal work of Jesus Christ convincing ultimate proof that you and I need to have an accurate understanding of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And I would say that although we have a different understanding of the word martyr today, even then, considering the subject to which these witnesses point, this is a matter of life and death. My friends, this is a matter of life and death. I think you can see in this text two convincing proofs. Two convincing proofs that John wants us to see that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah, the Son of God. He was simultaneously fully God and fully man. I think the first thing that John wants to say about this is in the language of complete fulfillment. Jesus, I think you'll see in this text, perfectly fills out the role of the Messiah with all of that. Let's begin to read. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. John says here, this is he. Now, let's pause right here and understand who he's referencing. Well, last week you might remember that in verses 1 through 5, we talked about three birthmarks of authentic faith. And one of those birthmarks was true belief or right understanding, right doctrine about the person of Christ. You can see that reflected in the bookends of this text, verse 1 and verse 5. What is he talking about? Belief in, in what or who? Jesus, that he is the Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Verse 1, and then note with me, verse 5, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is on John's mind. He is providing proof now, diving deeper into that right belief, that true belief, that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. This is he. Verse 6, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Let's pause right there. I think what we find here is that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed perfectly and completely fulfilling of the messianic role, the role of the Messiah. Um, I was thinking this week, because it's sort of Halloween season, 
back when I was a kid and back when you didn't have like superhero suits that came filled out with shoulders and pecs and chiseled abs. You guys know what I'm talking about and biceps. Uh, what we had back in the day was simply like replicas of the costume for Superman and Batman and Spider-Man. And because of that, there was always a bit of, you know, letdown. It was a, a bit discouraging when you put that guy on and looked in the mirror. Like the image in, in the mind wasn't quite reflected in the mirror because it was like baggy in all the wrong places, right? <laughs> didn't have biceps pushing that guy out, right? Or chiseled abs. And the underwear on the outside didn't quite work for me like it did for Superman, right? Do so you understand that? If you can humor me with that, understand that if there is a sort of super suit for the Messiah, the messianic role, Jesus of Nazareth fills it out perfectly. Like if we're watching his life in his public incarnational ministry, we're going, that suit was made for him. Right? He was born to wear that suit. He fulfills it perfectly. You might say, well, Dustin, how do we see it in the text? Well, let's look at it. Another word or question you might have about this text is, what in the world does John mean when he's talking about the water and the blood? So you can see that in the language of verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. What does this mean? What is this referring to? A number of ideas have been given down through the centuries as concepts as to what John might be referring to. And one that has been a common interpretation that we might be drawn towards is that what John is referencing here is the natural birth the natural birth process that involves water, amniotic fluid, if you will, and blood. And we might be drawn to that because one of the things that we have affirmed throughout the study is that Jesus was fully man, right? Jesus was fully man. So we might think to ourselves, well, clearly this is referring to his birth, but I don't believe that that's the case, and here's why. Know with me what John says at the end of verse 6. Okay, look at your text. See it there. He says, this is not by water only. In that, what John does here is differentiate, first of all, differentiate between water and blood. Okay? I would suggest eliminating the possibility that this is just a simple reference to the birth process. He differentiates between water and blood, but moreover, when you see the language of not by water only, what John seems to say here is that this is something water only that both camps agree on. Thus, I would say, eliminating the possibility of water and blood coming together to just simply talk about the birth process. I think this leads us to conclude that when John is referencing water here, he is referencing Jesus' baptism. Okay, Jesus' baptism. Now, you might have the question, well, Dustin, what do you mean when you say this is something that both camps agree on? Well, let's, again, just remind ourselves of the context with which John is writing, the context in which John is ministering. Understand that there were false teachers in John's day. In fact, we have record of this, even from the first century, from men like Serenthus, who were teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed a man. He was born. Okay, they would have acknowledged that birth process, Jesus was a man, but he was merely a man. 
Okay, he was merely a man who was baptized. And when he was baptized, the spirit of the Messiah sort of came and dwelled upon this man for a period of time. And this is why he was able to teach like he did. This is why he was able to perform miracles like he did. But here's the heresy. My friends, grab this. Men like Serenthus and other false teachers proclaimed that before the Passion, okay, the spirit of the Messiah ascended off of Jesus of Nazareth back to heaven. And so Jesus of Nazareth, as a man, sort of paid the consequences himself and died. He was died and died, he was buried, and that's the end of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus you can understand what John is getting at, if you're tracking with me, when he says, not by water only. He's directly addressing, not only affirming sound doctrine, but directly addressing the false teaching. The false teaching that some would have said, to make a gap between water and blood. So he says, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Thus, okay, to help us, and I think this is helpful to, to chart it for us, water would be a reference to Jesus' baptism, and although they were talking about it differently, both would agree that Jesus of Nazareth was baptized. The blood, however, would refer to what? We refer to the cross where Jesus, as the final sacrifice, laid his life down for sin, as an offering for sin. All that to say, my friends, the water and the blood here beautifully frame the whole of Jesus' public incarnation ministry. Such that he was baptized by John the Baptist, and it was a seminal moment in which he commenced his public ministry but it culminated, in a public sense, it culminated on the cross, whereby Jesus laid his life down as a sacrifice for sin, so that you and I could be forgiven. In this way, brothers and sisters, if you're tracking, in this way, Jesus fulfills the whole of the messianic role. He fills out that supersuit, if you will, perfectly. This is a summary of Jesus' incarnational ministry as Messiah. As you think about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, understand that his life fulfills many prophecies about what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. But moreover, in his death, Think passages like Isaiah 53, right? Where the servant of God gave his life, shed his own blood to pay the price for our sins. So in his life, in his death, but also in his resurrection, Jesus fills out the suit, my friends. You guys with me? He fills out the suit. He perfectly fulfills the role of the Messiah. He is simultaneously fully man, but also fully God. Amen? Fully man, simultaneously fully man and fully God. Can you hear me all right? All right, let's track. The rain is, is pretty though, isn't it? It's nice. And we need it. At this juncture though, as John is talking about convincing proof, and this concept of complete fulfillment, 
Someone might say this. Someone might say, well, says who? Especially think about this in context of the first century, as John seeks to pastor these people and preach to these people and write to these people. Someone might say, as they've heard perhaps a guy by the name of Bob, if you will, okay? Um, Bob is Mr. False Teacher. Some might say, well, that's what you have to say, John. You have to say that as your interpretation puts it, he came by water and blood. But what about Bob? What about Bob? Bob says it differently. Bob interprets it differently. Bob says that, you know, no, 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 no. Look at these prophecies in the Old Testament of victory. The Messiah shouldn't be dead. What about Bob? The question is, says who? How do you and I distinguish truth from speculation? Think about that in our culture. How do we distinguish truth from speculation? Well, we need an authoritative source, don't we? An authoritative word on the subject. Think about it in terms of like tech companies in our day, like Apple and Microsoft or Tesla. What do these companies do? Annually or periodically throughout given years, they have what they call events, right? Events, whereby they're going to unveil their new product, the new Tesla, or the new iPhone, the new MacBook, the new set of AirPods or whatever. But leading up to those events, what happens? Leading up to those events, there's all kinds of speculation. What's the new Tesla going to be able to do? Right? What's the new iPhone going to look like? How cool is that camera? Right? Rumor has it. Rumor has it. This is what it's going to include. But what happens? Then the event happens, and an authoritative voice steps up and communicates what actually is. Someone who would say, well, John says you, but how do we know that you're right and Bob's wrong? My friends, can I just say this? It all changes if God speaks. Amen? It all changes when God speaks. And this is what John goes on to say. It's not just, not just what happened, what Jesus did, which is verifiable but also what God has said about it. Notice with me your text in this divine testament. Again, verse 6. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. The Spirit is the one who martyrs for this, who testifies for this, providing convincing proof of this. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the Spirit's voice, they all agree. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, pause right there, how should we understand John's rhetoric here? Well, as we've talked about the language of martyr, this is a reference to how it would have worked in the court of law, right? One witness or one testimony, one martyr, and two or three martyrs, two or three testimonies, witnesses, that stands up. 
What is John saying? The testimony of men, that's something that you guys all acknowledge. There is legitimacy there. But how about God? Think about this. What about when God speaks? Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Amen? For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony, in the martyr, in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. So here, what is John doing? John is emphasizing the divine commentary. The first and third persons of the Trinity commenting on the person and work of the Messiah. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, so you can see it so clearly. Verse 6, the Spirit is the one who testifies. Verse 9, this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning the Son. Now, let us think about it. Okay? Let's think about it together with regard to even these events. What happened when Jesus was baptized? As recorded by the Gospel writers. Who also was present? Very good. Some are saying the Spirit of God was present and the voice of the Father was also present. Remember Matthew chapter 3 is one example of this. The Spirit of God, Gospel writers write, descended upon him like a dove and lighted upon him. And then there came a voice from heaven saying this, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What is John saying? The Spirit of God and the voice of the Father constantly affirm, constantly affirm that this is the Messiah. This is the very Son of God. Moreover, in the cross, how do the Spirit and the Father bear witness to the reality that the Son of God, the Messiah, died for the sins of the world? Well, we can just simply point to the Word of God, but also to the fact, my friends, to the fact of the resurrection. Think about this, my friends. And how the Bible constantly refers to the fact that the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God, God used to raise Jesus from the dead, verifying He was the Son of God, verifying that He was the Messiah. So the testimony in His baptism, the testimony subsequent to the cross. Moreover, by the way, you can also, you can also talk a lot about even just the external witness around the scene of the cross, the earthquake, the darkness, the veil being torn in two from top to bottom. There's no doubt. My friends, there's no doubt. This is witness from the Father and the Spirit about the Son. Moreover, consider the testimony at Pentecost. But John says here in John, 1 John chapter 5, that the Spirit is the one who testifies. Notice with me how this happens. As you think about it in terms of what God has to say in his word. Think first of all about what Jesus said about the coming of the Spirit. In John chapter 15 and verse 26. Please track with this. It's so cool. But when the Helper comes, this is Jesus, 
talking about when the Spirit of God will be sent in a discernible way, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about who? About me, Jesus says. John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he's pointing forward to a, a clear and discernible moment, he will guide you into all the truth. Into all the truth, namely about who? About Jesus about who he was and who he is. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is pointing forward to what the Spirit will say, what the Spirit will do and say when he comes. Now, that being said, Let's go together to Acts chapter 2. So take your Bibles and go with me there. Let's actually turn there. Really cool to see. Acts chapter 2. For sake of context, we're going to read verses 22 and following, but for sake of context, in Acts chapter 2, what Jesus prophesied about, what Jesus foretold about, actually happened. Okay, it came about, and it was very clear. All right, it was accompanied, the Spirit's coming with signs and wonders. This was not just like a powerful moment. Like we might say like the Spirit of God was present today. Like it was really great. We felt it, felt his presence today. No, like this was different. Okay, this was very different, accompanied by signs and wonders such that no one could miss it. This is clearly the moment that the Old Testament pointed to, that Jesus himself pointed to. The Spirit of God has arrived in a new way. He has come in a new way. So the Spirit of God comes and fills Peter, who stands to preach, and this is what he says. So here is from Peter, but also from the Spirit of God. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man fully man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. By the way, feel free to sprinkle some amens here. Man, this is an awesome message, is it not? Peter's preaching. The Spirit of God is preaching. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him, for the real Messiah, not a mere man, it was not possible for the real Messiah to be held by it. Jesus is no mere man. He is fully God. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What's going on here? 
Not only is Peter saying that Jesus is the Messiah, he's saying Jesus is God. You see it there. Even David refers to him as Lord and as the Holy One. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is with us, that, excuse me, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of who? The Christ. The resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. What are we seeing? We're seeing the false teachers were wrong. Are you guys with me? It wasn't water only. He wasn't merely a man who was enlightened by the spirit of the Messiah for a period of time, and then the Messiah left him for his passion. No, no, no. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, was the Messiah. He completed the messianic role perfectly and fully and finally. Let's just finish this text for a moment. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, this Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter is interpreting the moment for them and for us. The Spirit of God has come as Jesus promised he would. He's actually sent him today. So verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just pause right there. Jesus Christ, my friends, is the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is not just in terms of what he did. This is in terms of what God said. Amen? This has been affirmed. So the Spirit-empowered witness to the God-ordained messianic work of Christ is what's happening in Acts chapter 2. So there is divine testament. God speaks, and when he does, everything changes. Thirdly, I think we see in this text, verse 10, the testimony within believers. The testimony within believers. Let's make our way back to 1 John chapter 5. This is further evidence of divine testament, that the Spirit of God is within us. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God's made it clear. God's made it clear that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the divine son of God, simultaneously fully God and fully man, fulfilling the messianic role. This is divine testament to it. But he's also placed that testimony in you. He's placed that witness within you. We've often cherished here publicly the statements in Romans 8 where Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Amen? Amen. The Spirit of God bears witness with ours that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, or with Christ. 
continue. So as you sing songs of praise to God, as you read the words of God, as you meditate on the gospel of God, you know what, what happens in the heart and life of a true believer? What happens is internal witness happens. Internal witness. You know what it is. This is experiential. But you know what it is to hear that Spirit's voice, to feel in your heart and in your mind, this is true. Although you may not say it out loud, friends, you may not say it out loud every week, Internally, when you hear the word of God and it's accurately preached and you hear God's gospel, internally you're going, it's true, amen, amen. right? Amen. Right, it's true, I know it. The spirit of God is testifying to that in my heart. It's literally martyring to me in my heart. So there you have it. These are the convincing proofs. Jesus of Nazareth is the complete fulfillment. Moreover, he is the subject of divine testament. The complete fulfillment of messianic prophecy, the role of the Messiah, and he is the subject of divine testament. And so, we can be secure, my friends. We can be secure as we are trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. These things, these convincing proofs, martyr to this truth. Now, we've used the, the language of martyr multiple times in this sermon. I understand a few moments ago that I said that John, in this original context, is not thinking about martyr in the way we do. He is not thinking about death at all. But rather, we should understand that he's talking about witness, convincing proof. But I said a moment ago, we should understand that the subject to which he's pointing is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. And you see that in verses 11 and 12. Check it out in your text. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This is the witness. This is the martyr to the truth. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You might be saying to yourself, Dustin, why is all of this so important? Why is it so important to tease out things like, what does he mean by water and the blood? Why is it so important to spend time working through precise Christology, precise theology? My friends, it's so important because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Um, on Friday, I had a, a meeting early uh, down south, and I had a lunch in the middle of town, so I didn't come all the way back here. I just went to just went to a coffee shop and studied until my lunch meeting. And so I went to Harvard in the middle of town there. And I was sitting at a table beside a bunch of old guys. And I, I love old guys. And I was just eavesdropping. I know some of you think that I'm old since I'm in my 40s. But they were older than me. I'll just leave it there. And I love listening to old guys. So I was actually eavesdropping, I'll admit it, a little bit. 
And they were talking about politics, these guys. They were talking about politics and all the, you know, the things of the day. And at one point in time, one of the guys got up and uh, he left. And one of the other guys said, man, that guy's about as liberal as it gets. <laughs> That's what one of the guys said. That guy's about as liberal as it gets. And then one of the other guys piped up immediately and said, well, we need all kinds. That's what he said. We need all kinds. My friends, please understand, we're not talking about politics or sports. We're not having friendly dialogue about an ordinary person. What we're talking about here this morning is a matter of life and death. The stakes are high. Why is it crucial that we have precision with regard to who Jesus was and is? Because this is a matter of life and death. The gospel is exclusive. Isn't that what you see in verse 12? If you have the Son, what do you have? You have life. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. There's no other category. You're either, either with Jesus and you have eternal life, or you don't have Jesus and you do not have eternal life. The gospel is exclusive. Jesus himself said, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is not a way. He's not an option in the pantheon. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. And thus the gospel is exclusive. But isn't it also good? I say that because for some people, when we talk about the language of exclusivity, it's like fingers or fingernails on the, on the chalkboard. Because it feels in our culture like intolerance, right? Or maybe arrogance or even bigotry. Who are we to say that we've nailed the only way? That we've arrived at the only option, right? We're talking about exclusivity. But I would say to you, if it's true, it's good. Amen. Uh, someone once said this, tolerance is the virtue of a people who don't believe in anything. Let me say that again. Boy, do we see this in our culture. Tolerance is the virtue of a people that don't believe in anything. And my friends, I would say to you that God is loving, infinitely loving to say this to us, to all those that are hearing. If you have the Son, you have life. But if you don't have the Son, or better yet, if you have a right understanding of the Son, accurate understanding about who Jesus was and is, and you are trusting in him alone. If you are there, you have life. But if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have the Son, you do not have life. My friends, this is not God being a bigot. This is not God being hateful or arrogant. This is God in his love saying, the way is over here. This is what God is doing. As the sovereign creator of the world, he is saying, I'm ordained for one way, one way, one cure, one path to eternal life. And I provided it in myself in sending my son to die for this path 
And I'm saying, this is it. This is the cure. My friends, it's exclusive and it's good. It's simultaneously exclusive and wonderful. Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. My friends, this should increase boldness and courage in our hearts as we preach the gospel, as we talk to people about Jesus. Some might think we're being arrogant or bigoted. But man, get to the heart level. They might not believe, they might not accept, they might reject, but help them understand, no, this is God, God Almighty that's saying, I want you to know this path. In fact, notice with me the language of verse 10. What does John again affirm? John again affirms that it's grace. It's all grace. What do you see there? It's the language of he gave eternal life. It's not earned. This is God coming toward us, toward humanity, toward creation and saying, I've provided for you. I've made provision for you. So it was, as it was pictured in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, the provision for the people of God to make atonement for their sins, I have now provided my son, and he came both by water and the blood. He did go to the cross. He did lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin, and he was raised from the dead. Amen? He was raised from the dead. He's alive today, victorious and free. He did that for you so that you and I can know what it is to be forgiven, to have our shame taken away, to know for sure, for sure, that we have eternal life. Life is in his son. What a great God. Amen? What a great God. Now, as I close, understand what happens when you lock this side of the equation off. Which is what was at stake for the people of God in John's day. You can see how easy it is, can't you? How easy it is for them to just emphasize, no, he was a mere man, and he was enlightened. For a period of time, he was enlightened by the spirit of the Messiah. This is how he was able to do cool things and understand good things. He didn't go to the cross. He wasn't a failure. He was enlightened. This is true religion. Be enlightened. Experience the spirit of enlightenment. You don't need that. And what is John saying? Don't buy it. Friends, don't buy it. And in fact, fight for precision with regard to who Jesus was and is. Hold the line. Why? He that has the Son, the true Messiah, has life. He that has not the Son does not have life. So, you have John's convincing proof. He adds these to others that he's already given to us in this letter, but these are convincing proofs. The testimony concerning the Messiah is complete fulfillment and the divine testimony of God. May it be that all of us would leave here today saying, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus did die and that he died for me. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the testimony 
of the Apostle John. I thank you so much for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I thank you so much for bearing witness to it yourself in many ways. That your people might have confidence that they do know you. And that they are on their way to heaven. God, thank you. Your gospel is exclusive. Help us to stand with it. For your gospel is good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.